So today we are in Acts, excuse me, Colossians chapter 3, verse 22, and we're going to read into Colossians chapter 4. Bond servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. For, your, for you serve the Lord Christ, but he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, give your bondservants what is just and fair, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. Meanwhile, praying also for us that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am also in chains, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, redeeming the time. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. And may the Lord bless his word as we have it read into our hearts today. And we do thank the Lord for his grace as we read this, this message. And uh, this is a message that talks to employers and employees and what our obligations are. And in this case, you'll notice that he says, bond servants or servants or slaves. Starts with that. I'm always amazed by people who want to discount the, the Bible and they say, well, the Bible supports slavery, so obviously the Bible is wrong, or they don't say that. They use that phrase, well, the Bible supports slavery, therefore, since it's irrelevant to us now, we should discount the other things that the Bible says about things like marriage and everything else. So the devil knows the Bible quite well. The devil misquotes the Bible a lot, and he even had the audacity to try to quote the Bible to Jesus when he was tempted, but he never handles it correctly. And neither do lost people. So when people use the phrase here about slaves or masters, and these are politically incorrect terms to use today. I mean, how ridiculous do people get today? I even saw years ago where they were trying to get a master cylinder and a slave cylinder on, in, on a car renamed because it was just inappropriate. I guess all those uh, cylinders out there get offended quite easily, don't they? We are living in ridiculous times where people are denying reality on a daily basis. And not only that, but they are punishing and persecuting people who don't deny uh, uh, reality. So if you don't go along with their perception of what is real and what isn't, what is true and what is not, then you get punished because you don't get with the program. That's not right. So I'm here today to tell you that when the Bible talks about masters and slaves, it's very relevant today, okay? It is extremely relevant today 
because there's a whole lot in the Bible about slavery and about labor and about masters and lords and those who are the servants. Uh, there's a great verse in the Bible that says the borrower is the slave or the servant to the lender. You ever heard that verse before? That's a very true statement. Try having a lot of debt and then trying to walk away from that debt. Try to walk away, see how easy life is for you. Now, there are people who do it. It's not very fun for the person who loans the money and doesn't get it back. That happens to a lot of people. But it's not very good for you unless you get somebody to cover for you. You got somebody to excuse all your debt and then you go and exploit somebody else, which that itself is a sin because you should be willing to pay back your debts if you can. Now, there are always circumstances that can happen that can ruin any of us financially. There's no doubt that if you have $1,000 aspirins in modern healthcare, you can understand how expensive life could be for a person who's under great medical distress. So we know that financial ruin could happen to almost anybody, well, anyone, it can. But when, when we're talking about the fact that there is still this principle of master and slave today, I want you to realize that this is still true because we just redefine the terms. For instance, in our current economy, the way it works is on your own time, you're the master of your own time. On your own property, supposedly, if you don't get the EPA on you, you're the master of your property. You can do things on your own. I don't think I need that. It gets out of the way. A little microphone fell. But. And, and if you think about it, you're supposed to be the Lord of your own property. We have castle doctrines that literally say your home is your castle. So you have a right to defend your castle, your domain, your place where you live. And some, in some states, that castle doctrine can even apply to your person and your self-defense of your car, which it's, it's really kind of up in the air because there's so many situations that if you were scared for your life and God forbid it ever happens to you, but I don't know what I would do if I was surrounded suddenly, if I didn't know that there was a riot going on or there was a protest, so-called, and people are threatening my life and my car, I can get out of there with my car, but I'd probably kill somebody and then I'm the one getting in trouble. So I don't suggest that any of us want to be in that situation. So we know that there is this sense of protection even now, but you're the master of your own time and your own property. Now, you and I know though that for most people, that time that you're in charge of your own time, your own time is very narrow. Uh, we have long work weeks and we have high demands. And, and in today's world, people are working multiple jobs. So think about working multiple jobs. Where is your time? Where is the time that you have for yourself? Are you free? Are you really a free person? Uh, some people, a lot of conspiracy theorists talk about debt slavery. Well, it's, it's a reality. It's not a shame to be a slave, though. It's not a shame to serve other people. Uh, the, when Paul and the other apostles were preaching the good news of Jesus, his desire was not to revolutionize societal institutions. 
He wasn't trying to save the institutions of his day. He wasn't trying to tear down the institutions of his day. He was trying to save people. And what is beautiful about the Bible and about God is that it doesn't matter where you rank in society. If you are the lowest slave or the highest Lord in the land, you equally need God and you need to depend on the Lord. And that's the beauty of Christ, that he transcends all of these social circumstances. Now, communism and Marxism, it defines your happiness by your status economically. And you can, if you don't have as much as somebody else, you're being exploited. And if somebody has more than you, they are exploiting you and you are a victim. So what Marxism promises is that each gets according to their, their needs and each gives according to their means. They never have determined a fair way of doing this, nor have they ever answered the problem that they have. Because you know what happens? Somebody's got to make those decisions. And you know who's the only person who is capable of making that type of decision? Well, I can tell you right now, it's not walking the earth. It is the Lord. And no committee, no committee or party politically can make those decisions, yet we try to say we can make those decisions. So what is God trying to say here? When he starts out, he starts talking about the bond servants. He says, you've got a job. So today we are employees. That means for we trade our labor, our talents, whatever it is, for a job and we work for somebody else. While we're being paid by them, we are their servants in that which we are contracted to work. So you and I are servants of somebody. Now, when we engage somebody else to do something for us, they're our servants. So if you go to a restaurant, there's an informal contract. Uh, you ask them for food, you know, you ask for a hamburger, you don't want to get fish. You expect them to provide a service to you. So in our day, we are both the Lord's and we are the slaves. We have them both. We try to balance these things. It's not a perfect system. Nobody should ever say that we have a perfect system, but it never has been a perfect system ever since Adam and Eve ate the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. We have had problems, complications, and difficulties, and it's not gonna change till Jesus comes back. So we are the servants of somebody when we are engaged in serving them. And we have to be that way because guess what? Jesus is the ultimate example. Although he was the Lord, and the, he's the Lord of Lords and King of Kings, he took the form of a servant. And he lived the life of a servant, even though he deserved far better. So you and I should never have the idea that we are lording over everybody and are better than other people. So it's healthy for all of us to take the advice given to us here when he says bond servants. So let's talk about employees. What should your, your idea, what should your attitude be? Well, Paul's words are perfectly relevant to today. Oh, how many of you 
who have employed people would love the people working for you to have this attitude. What does he say? Obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. Ooh, wouldn't it be great that the people who work for you, when you turn your back or you're not in the area, they're still doing the job. They're not goofing off. They're not slacking. That is a very positive thing. Now, notice when he addresses these employees or bond servants, because that's what they are, they're, they're servants that they've sold their labor for a period of time. Notice that they are, they are in charge of doing what they're told to do. That's what they, they are. They have a boss who tells them what to do, but they're not to do it just when he's around. They're supposed to do it sincerely. They are supposed to do it wholeheartedly. They're supposed to do it enthusiastically because when they have determined to do this, then, then God, I think, is going to provide a reward. And we learn about that in the story. So what is a practical uh, end of this? That all of us as employees should remember that if we engage ourselves, our labor, our abilities to help in a service, then let's do a good job. Let's do a job that is going to be approved and not proved just by the eyes, but that are always, that when they find us doing anything, that we're doing what we're supposed to do. It is a great platform for living, and it is a godly way of living. Notice how this passage, though it deals with the issue of slavery, is perfectly relevant now. It works now. And oh, to God that we had people like this. There's a whole movement, and my wife told me about this, among young people that says, we are going to get back at the, the, the companies by slacking on the work on purpose. So they're literally just dragging their feet, doing as little as they can because they're not getting paid enough. or they're just It's, just, it's literally their attitude. Now, this is not a godly attitude. This is not what God wants us to do. Because if everyone is doing their job well, we are all benefited from it. It is a great thing for all of us to be. And so learn to serve, not just because somebody's looking, but fear God and let God be your employer. And that's another thing that's important, is that God is the employer of everybody. We need to look and, and convert our secular employment and whatever employment we have as directly coming from God, that God is the one we should fear. Do what's right because God wants you to do what's right, not because somebody said you can get by here and you, don't, you can slack up all the time. In verse 23, I love how this verse has universalized our options. Notice he says, and whatever you do, he doesn't define for you what to do. He's not telling you how to run wire. He's not telling you how to dig a ditch. He's not telling you how to plant corn. He's not telling you what you need to do. He just says, whatever you do. See, we need to be doing something. We need to be active if possible. He says, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men. So this, this enthusiastic approach is important. Uh, I was watching the uh, British Open. It's called the Open Championship this weekend, and it was raining horribly today. 
And as it was raining and it was miserable weather and they're having to play in it, of course, I'm going to tell you right now, I'll be glad to get soaked in the rain and go through four or five hours of that and, you know, get the, the paycheck. I'll, I'll take last place and still take the paycheck. That's fine. Of course, the last place is more than I make in a year, but still, that's fine. I'll be glad to be wet and miserable. But these guys are used to this lifestyle. But here's the point. Not, it's not fun to work in the rain and cold and all those elements. It's hard. Those caddies, they have to work very hard. But one of the commentators said, you've just got to embrace it. The way you overcome it is you embrace it. You just have to say, this is what we got to do. Uh, think about what if plumbers didn't want to get dirty. Oh, I don't like the smell. Well, you wouldn't be a good plumber. <laughs> It's not whether you like it or not. It's that your attitude. You got to just go in there and you got to get the job done. The quicker you get it done, the quicker you're out of it. You do it right. Do your job right and do it enthusiastically. This is not the, the life I would have chosen or this is not the job I would have chosen. I wish it was different, but doesn't matter. I've got a job. I'm going to do it wholeheartedly. Stop complaining. Stop being miserable. Don't drag your feet. Get in there and get it done. It's amazing how it does several things for you. Changes your attitude for one thing. You're not going to be a, a sourpuss. And another thing it does, it helps you do a better job and you develop a reputation as getting the job done. I think one of the great uh, persons in the Bible who illustrated that was Joseph. Remember, he was sold by his brothers to be a slave, but you didn't hear him complaining. He was, he would, was not happy to be a slave. He wasn't happy to be uh, a, uh, uh, a prisoner later on, but he did his job. He did his duty, and he did it wholeheartedly, and he did it well, and because of that, he developed a good reputation. God wants to build those reputations in your life. Do it wholeheartedly, and you have to convert your work to the Lord, not to men. That's the key for being a good employee. Now, and then the last benefit is not just that it helps you in your sense of getting things done. It's not just that it helps your employer. It's not just that it makes your reputation better, but it also promises a reward directly from God, an inheritance from God. Notice he says in verse 24, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance for you, for you serve the Lord Christ. Your employer is not your employer. It is the Lord. And if you need to change jobs, change jobs, but do it in a decent way. Give them proper notice and let them know that you are trying to go with their blessing as well because you and I need to make sure that we're serving God first before we're serving anybody else. We serve the Lord Christ. He's the one who's going to reward us often. But there are consequences. And notice that it doesn't matter whether you're a Christian or not. He says the consequences is he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done, and there is no partiality. So it doesn't matter who you are. You still got to do a good job. If you do a poor job, if you do wrong, you break the rules, whatever, God will not save you from that consequence. So there's no partiality just because you're a Christian and we should all have the right attitude to be a good employee. 
Now, after we see the message that God has for employees, let's look at the message he has for employers. In this case, masters. He says, masters, give your bondservants what is just and fair, knowing that you have you also have a master in heaven. So God says to the masters, he says, look, you have a privilege, a privileged position. You're a position where you're over other people. But remember, you're under the Lord. <laughs> so even though you're higher than people, other people in some cases, you're under the Lord. And if you wrongfully treat others, then he may wrongfully treat you. This balances back against you. I heard a story about a man who was a horrible boss and he kept picking on one employee in particular who never talked back, never did anything wrong, but he's always hounding him over his strategies and, and what he was doing in his job. Well, one day that employer, he died. So they go to the funeral and the, the one man who had been picked on the most goes up to the, the, the coffin and he, uh, it was all closed up and he reached over to the coffin and he said, well, Jim, who's thinking out of the box now? We, it's, it's uh, usually the sign of an employer who hasn't thought through or worked through things if they're always shouting at people. They're, if they're not talking with people, if they're not working through issues. One of the greatest things you could ever do if you make a mistake is tell your employer you made a mistake. I did this wrong. You know what I found is that when you are open with your employers, they're open with you because guess what? They made mistakes too. A good employer will tell his employees, I did this wrong. If you don't have enough security to say you did something wrong, then you don't have much security. It's amazing how that when an employer can admit, I didn't get this right, forgive me, or when you're in a store and you're accusing them of doing wrong and they point out, no, this is why you were, you were wrong. It's very important to apologize and say, you know what, you were right and I was wrong. Because guess what? I've complained before and I've not always been right. That's a scary thought, isn't it? And it's very good to be proven wrong. In fact, it's a good thing to be proven wrong when there is a situation involving treating people in a bad way. So a good employer is going to remember their position to give what is just and fair to those who work for them. Don't just try to be like uh, John Rockefeller. John Rockefeller, who is probably the richest man who ever lived when you do inflation, uh, he went and visited one time uh, one of his kerosene plants. Now, in those days, he made money on kerosene, which was used to heat lamps, and there was not widespread electricity. So kerosene was the lifeblood of having light in a home. So he would put these kerosene uh, uh, the kerosene itself in cans and these tin cans were, were then soldered and they would solder the lids and make sure that they were sealed. So he goes visit the, 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 the plant and, and, and I'm not sure about the numbers here, but the spirit of what I'm saying is still true. He said, how many drops of solder do you put on each can? 
And the man said, uh, 45. He says, can you do it with 43? So he goes back and they tried it and it worked. So he goes back later and says, how many are you doing now? He says, well, 43. Can you do it with, you know, 38? And they tried it. And then can you do it with 37? It didn't work. But he, he, he minimized to the very max, he maximizes efficiency because that's what he was all about. John D. Rockefeller was all about efficiency. He was 100% committed to not wasting anything at all, which in many ways is a good aspect of his life, but it also was bad because he would also force people out of business and buy them out and give them a sort of generous offer, but they lost their freedom to run their own business because he thought competition was awful. John Rockefeller hated competition. And so he was so committed to his idea of making business work that he did provide a good service, he did get very wealthy, but in the end, they tried to break up his companies because he was a monopoly. Well. I tell you, there needs to be a balance between efficiency and what's fair and just. And sometimes it's better not to try to squeeze people to the point to where they're just barely getting by. What if, what if God treated you that way? Uh, today I'm gonna give you your bare minimum today. Are you gonna be happy with God? You know, God could efficiently run our lives a lot more efficiently just letting us live off water and, and crackers today. And every day, you know, we don't need air conditioning. You can just, you know, get under a shade tree or something. God is generous. He is kind. He's not just a kind employer, so to speak. He's more than kind. So you and I should be more than kind when we are treating people well. So treat people in a way that is reflective of God's justice and fairness because we have a master in heaven and we want him when we make a, a mistake and you just, if you pounce down somebody the first time they make a mistake, you want God to pounce down on you the same way? No, I don't think so. But it's not just employees and employers because notice that after that, Paul generalizes a few practical things that everybody should do, whether you're an employee or an employer and really we're both. So here's what all of us should do. And the first thing he gives to us to do here is to pray earnestly in verse number two. Continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. Prayer is your way of watching out for evil and attacking evil. It is your way of letting God know what's going on. Now, God already knows, but he wants us to pray. Why does God want us to pray if he already knows what we need? He knows the exact appropriate action in every case. But notice how God says we need to be vigilant in prayer. It's because God has chosen to alter the world through our prayers, through our asking him in faith. So that's how you change the world. You don't change the world by just dominating the world. You change the world by being vigilant, obedient, and praying to God on behalf of the world. Do you think it's an accident that God has protected us from 
storms and, and so many things that we've seen hit all over the country and really all over the world. God has provided for us. Be vigilant and pray. Pray earnestly. Don't just say a half-hearted prayer. Get serious with God in your praying. He says, continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. Now, that doesn't mean everything is going right. In fact, we pray because things are not going right. Most of the time, it's so true, isn't it? We pray more when things are not going right. Oh, I'm sick, or I've got a friend who's hurt, or I've got something I'm worried about. I've got a bill I can't pay. I don't know what I'm going to do in this job. So prayer is a way for us to get our concerns to God, and he listens. That's the point. He wants us to pray in faith with thanksgiving. And if you can thank God when things are going badly, then you can thank God in any situation. So thank God for your struggles. Thank God for the bad things. Thank God for your bosses. Thank God for your employees. Thank God for when things go wrong. Thank God in every circumstance because Thanksgiving is an offering to God. But he, he doesn't just want us praying in our practical lives. He wants us to pray for the movement of God in the world. And that's something we, 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 I want you to pray this Wednesday and just every day. You should pray not just for your practical lives, which we should pray for, your health, your financial security, your physical security, but you should pray for the good news of Jesus. Notice he says, meanwhile, praying also for us. Paul was a great servant of God. He was a minister of God. He served God and spread the good news, but he said, I need you to pray for me. Well, we still need to pray for the servants of God. You need to pray for pastors. You need to pray for those who teach the word. You need to pray for them that God would open to them an opportunity and clarity. Notice those two things. He says here that we would have a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ. He, needed uh, he was actually a prisoner when he wrote this. So he needed an opportunity to tell about the Lord. So he says, pray for me, because even though he was imprisoned, the gospel was not. But he also says that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak, that I may speak in a clear fashion, that I make it known the way it needs to be. I teach at school, at a Christian school. I tell the good news of God every day but you should pray for me that I would be able to have the opportunities to say the right words at the right time in the best and clearest way. Because if I'm not supported by people who pray, how am I going to do it on my own? I can't win arguments with these kids. Try, try winning a, an argument with a teenager. How successful have you been lately? I mean, we're not winning the arguments today, folks. This world has a lot of flashy things and a lot of distractions for these young people. And, and you know what? I feel sorry for them. I really do. It's hard getting through life unscathed by this world. But you know what? The Bible says that we have prayer. And you can pray specifically for those trying to reach children and young people and people in general, pray that God will give them the opportunities where somebody's listening. You know what the number one need of a student is? To listen. That's it. 
Give attention. That's it. If, if there's no other rule you follow in school, you better give your attention. If you don't have your attention, you've already lost. You will not make it at all. You've got to have attention. I, that's what I call an opportunity. So pray that the students will listen, that people will listen. Very important. And that I, he says, would make it manifest and make it known that I would do my job by telling what needs to be told. If I got up here and preached a message and I didn't know what I was talking about, I would be ashamed. It's ridiculous. Why? I should tell you. Now, it doesn't mean I get everything right. I mix up my facts and figures and I'm going to make mistakes left and right. But I'm going to tell you right now, I do know what I'm talking about. I know what the Bible says and I teach the message of the Bible. And it's the most powerful message of God, of, God, of, of the world, and we need to learn it. So prayer helps water the seeds that are sown and makes growth. Pray that God gives us opportunity and clarity. But not only that, but all people, both employees and employers, should pray, but they also should make wise choices. Notice what he says in verse five. Walk in wisdom toward those who are outside redeeming the time. We live in this world, but we don't live within the four walls of a church. We don't live here. We live in the world. We live among lost people. So we need to walk in wisdom and we don't need to be wasting time. We need to be like John Rockefeller when it comes to time. <laughs> we need to take time to do the right thing and stop wasting time making a ticky-tock or whatever it might be. God wants us to redeem the time because if we walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, then God will help us to get paid correctly for the time we use. And one of the greatest things you can do when you're walking in wisdom is watch what you say. Very powerful words here. And no doubt you've heard this verse before. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt. That's, that's a very powerful message because if we have our grace, uh, our speech seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer everyone or each one. Um, I don't think that when I eat my mashed potatoes, I don't like having mashed potatoes with no salt. I want salt on it. But I have never eaten a bowl of salt sprinkled in mashed potatoes, ever, 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 ever. Yet, that's the way a lot of people's speeches are. Everything out of their mouth, bitterness, bad news, gossip, hatefulness, criticism, and then maybe a little flattering word here or there. No, we don't need to flatter people. We just need to speak graciously. We need to be calm when we speak. We need to speak with the words of grace because we're forgiven of our sins. and We have a master over us, and if we're going to take it out on everybody else, he's going to take it out on us, and I don't want him doing that to me. We need to be gracious. Do we need to stand up and say the right thing? Yes. Do we need to make sure that we don't support what's wrong in the world? Absolutely. That's why I said seasoned with salt. But you, it doesn't take much salt to go a long ways. Same way with our speech. Our corrective speech should be rare. It should be diffuse. It should be spread out. 
and it should be respected because we do it so little that we're not always hounding people. And then God will listen, and people will listen. And that's the way we should have our speech with grace, seasoned with salt, so we'll know how to answer everybody. So ask the Lord, Lord, give me the right words to say when I talk to people, and he will give you what you need to say. This was a message on how to have a good work ethic, how to be a good employee, how to be a good employer, and how to just be a good person in life. And if you follow these simple things, I believe God will, as the song said, take care of you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, I wanna thank you for your word, and I thank you that you've given us hope, that we're working for you. You're our number one employer, and that we need your help. Please be generous to us, and let us be generous to others. And may we pray smartly and wisely the way we should so that the good news of Jesus will get out and be understood and that people will know what to do. And when we witness to people in the world, may our speech be with grace seasoned with salt. So then we will say exactly the right thing to all people. In Jesus' name we pray and amen.